My name is John Becker, host of the Debrief Podcast and the founder of Aardvark Tactical. This is a new short-form podcast series from the Debrief. In each episode, we will discuss a single aspect of leadership in depth with subject matter experts who operate in high-stress environments inside and outside of the tactical community. The goal of this series is to give you direct access to the men and women whose leadership skills have been tested in the world's most dangerous situations and to provide you with specific, actionable information that you can use to hone your leadership skills. This is Battle Proven Leadership. My guest today is Kevin Sear. Kevin is an inspector with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and is the current commander of the RCMP's Emergency Response Team for British Columbia, which is the second largest tactical unit in Canada. Kevin has been with the RCMP for 22 years and has been with the team for seven years. As part of his current assignment, Kevin is responsible for leading the response to over 200 incidents a year that can range from a simple barricaded suspect or a search warrant all the way up to a complicated terrorist attack or a hostage rescue. As a result, I think Kevin's in a unique position to talk about leadership and decision-making. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today. So we can go through this, Kevin. Thank you, John. So why don't we start with, you know, obviously as part of your job, you're dealing with, you're constantly having to make decisions and every decision you are making is under pressure. There is a consequence to everything that you're doing. Um, why don't we start with delegation of authority, kind of talking through like, how do you delegate authority in, in a situation and, and how do you avoid, you know, putting people across purposes and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So there's two big leadership landmines and decision-making landmines that you have to avoid. The first is being the guy who wants to make every decision. And the second is being the guy who won't make any decision. If you're going to work in the environment that we work in, which is, I call it an asymmetrical downside risk environment. If things go wrong, they go terribly wrong. It's a massive consequence. Meanwhile, there's no real upside. So if we do a hostage rescue call tomorrow and it goes wrong, people will die. If it goes right, great. We get to do that next call again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And if we can string together a, a career of 20 years of those calls, we get to call that a successful career. It is like going to a casino where you can go bust or you can break even, but you'll never win the jackpot. There's no jackpot in this business. So if you're going to work in that risk environment, and if you're going to be operating in time compressed, in a time-compressed environment where you don't have control of all the variables, you don't have complete information, you must delegate authority. You cannot make every decision. You simply will not have the situational awareness or the time to make it all, and your cup will become overfull. <clears throat> so that's the first lesson, is you have to delegate authority. Now, there's a danger to delegating authority. If you decentralize command and don't maintain awareness of what your various elements are doing, they can maneuver themselves into a, essentially what we'll call a crossfire situation. Now, this could be an actual crossfire. If you, know, you, if you put two containment elements on a house and maybe they can't see where each other are, if it's, if it's maybe a large acreage or something, they could maneuver themselves in a, into a location where they're in a crossfire and they don't realize it because they can't see each other. It's dark out. They're under concealment, whatever. Just to let me just cut in on that. So, and to the to less tactically savvy 
guessed, you, you literally mean that two teams could end up on the opposite side of, for instance, a room where they will unintentionally end up shooting at each other. Exactly. Exactly. But now, a blue on blue, and you know, if we extrapolate that maybe to an office environment, if you've delegated authority to acquire equipment to two different groups, maybe they're going to duplicate efforts because they're both going to try to acquire the piece, same piece of kit. Or one person will, will acquire a piece of kit, the other person will acquire something else, and they won't work together. Yeah, or, yeah, or mm -hmm. if you fail to delegate you know, the lines between the two, they may literally end up at cross-purposes. One, one may be trying to get rid of equipment. One may be trying to buy this, the equipment. And, and the next thing you know, you are, you're fighting yourself. Exactly, exactly. So to me, the remedy to that situation uh, <clears throat> is communication. You have to ensure that if you're going to delegate authority, that you're still communicating what people are doing. <clears throat> and the trick to that is I call it uh, intentions versus permissions. So one thing we notice, especially on our team, bunch of high performers. If I try to control everything that they do, they won't actually come to me asking for 100% permission on everything. They'll actually just do things that I won't know about, and they'll do it to get the job done. Yeah, they'll receive forgiveness rather than permission. E exactly. That doesn't help me because maybe they're working at cross-purposes with myself or one of the other elements. So we have to open up those communication pathways. So the first thing is you have to relinquish a little bit of control and realize that that's actually going to increase your visibility on what's going on. If they're still, and so instead of asking for permission, you ask them to breach their to brief their intentions. So what I mean is this is, you know, if you have two containment elements, uh, you know, and you've assigned them tasks like, hey, I need you to handle, you know, the west side of this house. I need you to handle the east side of the house. They need to brief back on what, how they intend on accomplishing that mission. So they're going to, you know, one element will say, copy that. We intend on positioning ourselves here. The other element, we intend on positioning ourselves here. Now you can deconflict. Because you've given each of them situational awareness of what the other one is doing. And you've confirmed that what you think they're doing is in fact what they what they think they're doing. Exactly, and they also not only do I know what they're doing, but they know what each other is doing. Yeah. <clears throat> so now they're in a much better position. So briefing intentions rather than ask rather than telling everyone to come ask for permission, so you know what's going on. Delegate authority, and make sure they brief intentions. You're still going to know what's going on. That means sometimes what happens is, as a leader, you will have miscommunicated the delegation of authority. Someone will have understood you to say that they can do something that you did not intend for them to do. And they'll in brief intentions on something, and because they're briefing intentions, they'll say, hey, you know, we're going to compress up to the door and place the door charge on now. And you go, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Be now that they said that, I realize I miscommunicated how much delegation of authority there was. I need to actually retain that. And I can cancel that. And that's okay. No harm done because they brief their intention. Or it'll re make me realize, wait a second, I did tell them they could do that. But what I failed to do is pass on that new this new piece of information that I have that they don't have that would render that decision not a good idea anymore. So briefing intentions opens up the communication pathways in such a way that it gives everyone situational awareness. But it also reduces the barriers that people feel when they have to ask for permission for everything. Like people don't ask for permission for anything. If they want to get the job done, they'll just do it and they'll find a way to do it. 
And then you're going to spend your whole life trying to find out what people are trying to sneak by you and being obsessed that you don't know what's going on and being frustrated. And then your team will be frustrated because they're going to feel that they're under a microscope. Yeah, well, because at that point, you have no choice but to micromanage them. Exactly. Right. If, if you feel like they're sneaking behind your back and they're doing things that you don't want them to do and it's not clear what their intentions are, then to some degree, you have to find that out, which becomes micromanagement whether you want it to or not. Exactly. And you're fooling yourself. If you think you can take these complex problems and make every decision on it, you're kidding yourself. You can't. So that's why they're going to probably make their own decisions on things and you'll find out later because you didn't answer in time or you, you didn't have the right situation where to make a solid decision. So you you fail to delegate and your top performers, they're going to find a way to get the job done regardless. And now you're into frustration and you're into conflict and there's a way to avoid it. Well, that kind of brings up something else that, that you and I have talked about, which is part of being an effective leader is putting the most knowledgeable person in the position to make the decision, right? And, and as a leader, you are almost never the most knowledgeable person. You're the one that's tasked with the decision, right? So, so how do you ensure when you are delegating authority that you are bringing the most knowledgeable person into that position? Okay, so this is my trick. <clears throat> this is my cheat code. Is for a long time, um, I would ask the wrong type of questions. <clears throat> and I would ask the wrong type of questions that, that would then result in frustration of my team leaders. So my team leaders would come into the office and they'd want to brief an ops plan. They, you know, maybe we have a search warrant execution to do the next, to do the, the next day. And they'd say, you know, uh, hey boss, uh, we want to do strategy A. And I want to make sure that, like you said, they're the most knowledgeable and they've made an informed decision on that. So I'm going to ask some questions like, well, what about option B? Have you thought about that? And what about option C? And what about option D? And I'm going to ask them, I call them what about questions. And what's going to happen is the team leader is going to feel that they're on the defensive, that I am now questioning them. In my mind, I'm just wanting to make sure that we covered off all the bases and we've made a good decision and I can articulate it in court and we haven't missed anything. In their mind, I'm questioning their judgment because they've already made that assessment. So I've put them in a defensive position. There's a better way to answer the question, or sorry, there's a better way to ask the question. And that is a tell me about question. So instead of saying, what about option B and C? I say, tell me about the other options that you thought of and why you chose this one. Now, instead of being defensive, they have the opportunity to demonstrate their knowledge to me. And I got to tell you, 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm blown away at the professionalism and the thought that they put into it. And I would have asked about maybe, I would have asked maybe two things. They'll come out and explain how they looked at four things. So the what about questions are limited to how much I know. It's limited to my knowledge. I can only ask the things that I know because they're closed-ended questions. If I say, tell me about, well, now I'm opening the door to everything they know. <clears throat> This has a few different um, benefits. One of the major benefits is sometimes there's an error made. They forgot to look at a certain option. Instead of me saying, well, what about this option? And them going, oh, I forgot that. And now they've, you know, I've pointed out an error. When they start talking about, when I say, tell me about, they realize they forgot something. It's a self-discovered error. I expend zero leadership capital in them discovering that. And they go, oh, you know what? I forgot about this other thing. Let me go work that out. I'll come right back. Or we'll just hash it out right at the time. 
Now, sometimes, and here's the thing, as a boss, it's my job to know my business. I might not have all the experience some of my team leaders have. They've been around a long time. But sometimes, I mean, they're not perfect. They're fallible humans, just like I am. So if I ask what about questions, I will ask only what I know to ask, and they will answer only what I've asked. If I ask a tell me about question, they will offer all the information they have. If they've forgotten something, I can now ask a follow-up question. That's when I can say, well, what about option C? You didn't mention that. Could you tell me about that a little bit more? So it, the self-discover error and the preservation of leadership capital is huge. We're going to make deposits in that bank. And I'm going to tell you when we're going to make withdrawals on it. Or we're not withdrawals, but we're going to rely, I think maybe a better way is to say, we're going to deposit money into that leadership bank and we're going to use the interest we're going to use on it when we don't have time to make those have those big conversations. I don't have the time to ask, tell me about everything. Instead, my team leader's coming to me. He's like, here's the situation. We need to do option A. I know how he thinks. I know that this is a professional because we've built that trust. We've built that shared perspective. One of the outcomes that, that comes of this <clears throat> is if my team leaders and I are looking at a tactical problem and we have dramatically different ways of addressing it, we're not looking at the same problem. It's a huge red flag. If there's a disagreement, because we've made all these, have all these conversations about what proper strategy is, what proper tactics are, we've got you know, lots of experience, shared experience. If you have a, a disagreement with how to approach a problem, you're probably not looking at the same problem. So there's a community, that, that, to me, that's a big red flag. And I'm like, okay, what are they seeing that I'm not? Or vice versa, what do I know that I failed to pass on to them? And you won't uncover that unless, uh, unless you have that built-in trust that, that realizes, you know, you know what? Like, there should be 95% overlap on how we think we should solve this thing. And if there's not, we're not looking at the same problem. No, that makes perfect sense. It's, it's, um, it's funny because I teach a class on culture-centric leadership. One of the things they say in that class is, is my job as a leader is to harness 100% of the brain power for the people that work for me. And although you'll never get 100%, you need to drive for 100%. And the only way to do that is to, one, provide people with enough authority that they can make decisions and that they can feel like they can take chances and take risks and, and lean in and express their feelings, but, but also give them, put them in a position where when we disagree, when we don't see necessarily eye to eye, they can challenge thinking and, and we can have that non-emotional moment where it's like, hey, this is what I see, this is what you see, and create this common operating picture. And, and it strikes me that that's exactly what you're doing, is you're creating a common operating picture for, for the people that you're doing that with. And then, you know, to go back to your analogy, that's spending the interest. You're also putting savings in that bank because there's going to be a point where you're going to step on somebody in a decision-making, either because you have awareness that you don't have time to share or because their plan is, is, you know, flawed from your perspective and you don't have time to completely articulate it. And you may say, no, we're going to do this. If you've already set up the communication where I know as your subordinate that you care about my opinion, that you value what I'm saying, and that we have this dialogue, I can trust you. And, and that allows me when you just say, nope, we have to go this way to just say, okay, in the same way that you trust the subordinate, the subordinate learns to trust you and, and understand your decision-making 
which gives you the ability to spend that capital without damaging the relationship. Awesome. I have a follow-on thought to that. So you talked about harnessing that 100%. How do you harness that 100%? I think one of the keys is matching authority and responsibility. So if I give you the responsibility to accomplish a task, I need to give you the the authority necessary to accomplish it. I'll give you a simple example. John, I need you to take care of the armored vehicle. And if you, that's your responsibility. But if you're not allowed to spend any money to do that and you have to come ask for anything, you're just going to get frustrated. So we see some problems when we have high responsibility but low authority. That's when you get frustration. If you get low responsibility and low authority, listen, John, not, you know, I don't want you to make any decisions and you're not actually responsible for anything. You know, just sit there and be quiet. That's just ambivalence, right? Like you, you're, yeah, yeah. You're I, don't, I don't care because my job is to look pretty, and that's not going to happen. That's so. right. That's right. And then, if I retain all the authority, but I don't have any responsibility, if things go wrong, it's your fault, John. But you have to run everything by me. We have a word for that. It's called tyranny, right? Like no <laughs> one likes working yeah. under those th- those conditions. It's when you match the authority and responsibility. Here's your task. You know, here's what you need to accomplish it. You, you have all the authority you need to accomplish it. Brief me on your intentions because we still need to have that conversation. Well, now I've given you autonomy and purpose, and now I'm going to get high performance. It's only in that top quadrant, high responsibility, high authority, that I can get high performance. You can't always give authority. Sometimes it's like, you know, by policy, there's certain things only I can sign. But there's certain ways around that to mitigate those times. By and large, you should be able to match it. No, I think that's, I picture as you're saying that, I'm picturing a grid you know, with, with, with authority and responsibility on the two sides. And that top right quadrant is where, where I want to be. And if I'm, you know, with, with high authority and high responsibility, and, and if I'm, you know, in, in either of the other quadrants, I'm going to have varying levels between frustration, distrust, you know, or, or ambivalence. Um, so, so the goal is to constantly try to match the authority that you are delegating somebody with the responsibility to accomplish the tasks at hand. Yes, and make it appropriate to the person's skill level and position. You don't want them to get frustrated because they can't do it, they don't know enough, or they're just going to fail and you'll have to correct it. Um, so I think that is how you develop people is to keep pushing that, get them in the top right quadrant, high authority, high responsibility, and then keep expanding the size of that more authority, more responsibility, more complex tasks. Which then allows you as the commander to push that authority down in the chain of command, which means you are no longer dealing with the individual tactical problem, which in your case is literally a tactical problem. In my case is, is, you know, is, is not people shooting at each other, but it it may be, you know, an immediate problem with manufacturing or with, you know, the way the business is running. And, and in the process, you're getting a broader situational awareness, right? You know, the, tactical community, it's described as front site focused when your, your, your field of view becomes fixated on a very small thing um, because that, that's all you can cope with at the time. And really what you want to have is a, as, a, as a leader is a broad field of view. And I think the last time we were together, we talked about that. We talked about this idea that, um, you know, is as, as the operation is exceeding your ability to perceive it. As the, the data stream becomes too much, the computer slows down. And, you know, I, I recently interviewed a Medal of Honor winner, 
And he was describing being in this just horrific firefight with grenades going off and all that. And he said, there was a point that I realized that I was just looking at the rounds coming out of my gun and my sights. And I didn't even see the guy I was shooting at. And he said, I knew I needed to slow down. I was moving too quickly because I didn't see what was going on. And, and that's really kind of what you're, you know, what you're doing by delegating authority is you are pulling off the, the, the breadth of the data stream and sharing it. And then what's coming to you is the things that you actually need to see and the information that you actually need to take action on. So I love this. Information overload is like oxygen deprivation. You don't realize it's happening to you. It's very, very difficult to identify it yourself, right? Um, I have had information overload. I remember being at a hostage call and it was my first team leader experience. I, I was insufficiently trained for the task. Um, we were successful in the end, but I, I could have done better. And I remember one of my members, he had gotten the schematic of the room from one of the witnesses and he was trying to show it to me and I could not comprehend what was written on that page. In retrospect, that's information overload. That was probably the most important piece of information I could have had. But the signal to noise ratio was such that I couldn't identify that as the most important piece of information. I was fixated on other things that were of lesser importance. My cup had overflowed by that point. I no longer had the situational awareness to be able to discern important or unimportant. I essentially was like in a low oxygen environment where you're, you know, you get a bit brain dead. And I feel like information overload is the same thing. Yeah, it, it's funny because as you're saying that, I'm thinking there's, you know, that same kind of four pong matrix. The the information overload, in addition to being, you know, like you're in a low, and, and the perfect example where if, when you're in a low oxygen environment, the urgent crowds out the important. And when you're information overloaded, it's very easy for the urgent to crowd out the important, right? Like we have to make a decision on lunch as opposed to the boat's about to hit an iceberg. And, you know, when you, when you, when you find yourself overloaded, it becomes very easy to look at the things that are immediately burning you and lose strategic perspective. And, and it also becomes very easy to make easy decisions and skip hard ones. It feels good. It feels like you're oh, making yeah. progress. Yeah. No, we're, hey, gonna, we're knocking this out, man. Yeah. We're, we, we're going to, you know, we're going to get sandwiches and then we're going to have a, a can of Coke and then a, what the house is on fire. It, it, it is, you know, it, it, and that is that same thing. Being able to delegate, being able to have some strategic perspectives slows everything down in your mind. Well, you talk about that, you know, that front aperture. When a problem fills up your whole aperture, it, you can't tell, you can't tell what you're looking at. You know, it's like, you know, you're looking at the leg of an elephant or a wall. You can't tell the difference. So that detachment and taking, getting that broader perspective is important. It's crucial. You can't do that if you haven't delegated the appropriate amount of authority and responsibility to your team members. If you're engaging in difficult things, look, if you have an easy job, sure, you can do it yourself all, all day long. If you're doing something worthwhile, that's challenging you can't do it alone. Like by definition, you can't do excessively complex things without delegating authority to your team. But yeah. those are the most scary things to delegate. So it's a bit of a catch-22. So. Yeah, it's it's funny because as you're saying this, like, so I, I race cars, race cars for a hobby. And when I first learned to race cars, 
I, the first time I was on a track in a race car driving what I thought was fast and was shockingly slow, <laughs> there was this, I, I remember I drove, God, I don't know, four laps, five laps, and I got out and laid down because my head felt like it was going to explode because there was so much information, so much noise, people on the radio, other cars, you know, the car's movement, the sound of the car, gears, there's, there's a thousand things going on. And, and I had no ability to determine what was important and what was potentially dangerous. Because there are a lot of things, the sound of the engine being one, that don't matter unless it's weird. Right? It's, it's kind of like it's an everything okay alarm. It's ringing all the time. It's not an alarm anymore. But the problem is when you don't understand what matters, you, you don't have the ability to discern signal from noise. And so all you hear is noise and it's exhausting. And as I progressed and became a better driver and started racing, I started to realize like there were a thousand things going on and I was ignoring 998 of them because the only thing that mattered was how am I going to get past the guy in front of me and how do I position? And that was the point that I realized like this is, this has gone from me trying to control a beast to me trying to beat the guy in front of me. And I'm not thinking about everything else. But part of that is because I began to understand what was, what was dangerous. How do you quantify kind of the dimensions of risk in your world? Okay, so in my world, it is very easy to hyper-focus on one domain of risk, that being physical risk. Hey, bad guy has a gun, there's physical risk, he could shoot someone. Hey, bad guy has a knife, he could stab someone. And then to develop your plans to deal and mitigate that physical risk down to zero, to drive it down to zero. It's not that easy. There's other domains of risk. So the other one is, uh, the second one would be investigational risk. So it's not enough that I mitigate the risk that that guy doesn't shoot someone, but I also want to make sure I do it in such a way that we can get charges on him later or that he doesn't escape. If he escapes, it doesn't matter they didn't shoot anyone because he's gone. Or if we don't get charges, it doesn't matter because he's going to be out and he'll get another gun. And the other one is organizational risk. So we've got physical risk, investigational risk, and organizational risk. Organizational risk is a bit broader. It's like the long-term survival of the team. It's like, yeah, our mission is to mitigate physical risk from people with guns. If we do something really stupid and our team gets disbanded, we're not going to be around to accomplish that mission. That We will not be able to accomplish the next time. It now becomes an optimization problem. You can't solve for zero all three categories or even one category. It's constant trade-off. It's constant trade-off. And I think those are the interesting leadership problems to take care of is when you've got competing domains of risk. And I could come up with a plan that mitigates physical risk to zero and we're all going to go to jail for it. You know, like, yeah, right? just, just burn the house down. Sure, easy, yeah. easy. Yeah. We're all going to go to jail and yeah, the agency's going to get sued and there's going to be not going to be a Philadelphia move incident, drop a bomb on the house. So it's, it's, we're always making trade-offs. We pretend we don't, but we do. Yeah, for sure. It's... And the thing is, one of the things that I say is, look, we're, we're constantly, we're constantly making choices. Whether you realize you're making choices or not, you're making choices and make those choices consciously, right? Part of, part of my job in being an effective leader is to make conscious choices, not to become a victim to the event and let bad things happen that I didn't foresee because I've lost situational awareness because I lack the courage to make a decision or something else, right? So you know, part of my job is gather as much information as I can in the timeline that I have available and then weigh the alternatives and make 
the best decision possible with the information I have. You know, sometimes that means the right decision. Sometimes it means the wrong decision. Uh, I tend to have way more time to make decisions in my world than you do in your world. But in either case, you know, any decision has a timeline on it and you have to make it within that timeline. And part of that is that risk assessment and figuring out like, you know, who's, you know, what, what are we trading here? Well, okay. So this is, this is something I like to talk about a lot is decision, decision criteria. Oftentimes, let's say I came to you, I'm, I work in, let's say you own a store and I come to you and you, and I say, Hey boss, I think we should change the schedule in the the store. You know, we should change our opening hours. And you say to me, great, Kevin, why don't you write a proposal for me? This happens a lot in the policing world. Hey boss, we want to change our schedule. Great. Write me a, we call it a business case. Write me a business case. The next question I should ask you is like, okay, what's your decision criteria? What is going to make you say yes? And what is going to make you say no? I would say most times these are completely undefined. We ask for that proposal or the business case because we want to buy time for a decision. We don't know what, we don't even know what the decision is. Oftentimes we haven't even clarified it and we haven't decided what's going to make us go one way or the other. What is the, you know, the, the trump card in any one of these scenarios that's going to either make us not do it or is going to make us do it. So in thinking about decision criteria, you know, it's, it's kind of like, what is your decision criteria? And the second question that we always ask is who has the authority to make the decision? Because you may have a great decision criteria, but if your answer to my question is I need to go ask my boss, it's not a decision criteria. It's, it's an academic game. Like, you know, who has the authority to make the decision and then what is the basis upon which they're going to make the decision? So this is, if you want to survive in a bureaucratic organization, I know you've only been in private industry. Yes. I've avoided bureaucratic organizations my entire life. You're missing out. So in a government bureaucracy, that is the first question you should, okay, sometimes it's the first question you should ask. Hey boss, we want to buy a new armored vehicle. And he'll say, you know, depending how big your organization is, it might not be clear who has the authority to sign off on that. So the, I say my definition of bureaucracy is some, somewhere where everyone can say no and no one knows who can say yes. So everyone is going to ask you for this proposal and any one of them can say no and it's going to keep going up the chain, but no one knows who can say yes. So the first thing I ask is, who can approve this? The second thing I ask is, what is, so first, no, the first question is, what is the decision? Who can approve it? And what is your decision criteria? If you formalize those three things, you're in a good spot. Sometimes it pays not to ask those things because you can take advantage of the nebulous nature of it. Sure. And just convince someone to say yes, like, or maybe even you just say yes to yourself. And you know, so sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for. You might get an answer you don't like. Yeah. Um, but if there's a firm answer that, and you can't say yes to it, ask those questions. It's amazing how often you don't get an answer and no one knows. They were fully prepared to say no to your project, but they have no clue who's going to say yes to it. Yeah. And, and that's, it's interesting. So being in an organization where, I, I mean, I spent my entire life dealing with government organizations and, and they're making complicated decisions about equipment and projects and things that they're going to do. And that's one of my first questions. Who has the authority to approve this? And the number of times that I've sat in rooms where they've argued, I mean, I, I, I was, we were working on a project with, with a major DOD activity and they came out and they said, this is what we want to do. And how do you say, great, who has the authority to make this decision? And one of the guys in the room said, I do. And then another guy in the room said, no, you don't. I'm the one that makes that decision. And they argued in front of me 
for an hour, right? If that's where the decision-making authority is, there's no point in us continuing talking about the decision. Let's sort out who has authority and responsibility, and then we can look at the criteria. Because the only criteria that matters is the criteria of the decision-maker. And everybody else in the chain is noise. That's right. So like, let's get to the, let's get to the actual signal. Let's get to the guy that can flip the switch, right? Kevin, this has been fantastic. Um, where can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? Probably the easiest way is LinkedIn. What's your LinkedIn profile? And we'll put it in the notes, but. Yeah, it's just my name, Kevin Sear. Last name spelled C-Y-R. And I'm uh, the bald guy in green. Perfect. Um, so we end every episode of Battleproof Leadership with three questions. First question. What's your most important habit? Sleep hygiene. So I take my sleep very seriously because it is just foundational to everything else that is going on. And there's tons of great online resources that can help improve sleep hygiene. And the ROI on it is almost limitless. Totally agree. Kevin, what's the most important thing for building an effective team? Well, I think for me, the most important thing is to do the thing that I find the hardest. And that is never accepting imperfection, but accepting the fact that I will never achieve perfection. So it's that it's that balance between unwavering commitment to continuous improvement without driving myself crazy and without driving all my team crazy and creating the impression that I don't think they're doing good enough and that nothing they do is good enough. That's a balance point of never accepting where you're at, but knowing when to push and when not to push. That's fantastic. I totally agree with you. I've struggled with that my entire career. What's the one thing every leader should know? I think every leader needs to know that when they're making a hard decision, it's okay for it to feel uncomfortable. That is actually a good signal that they're making difficult decisions. And the tendency is always to overanalyze, delay, do whatever you can do to make that decision feel easy. It's never going to feel easy. If the decision felt easy, it wouldn't be a decision. It would be a process. And I could replace you with a spreadsheet. We're not, you're not a spreadsheet. You're a leader. You need to make hard decisions. They feel hard for everybody. No leader that makes hard decisions has an easy time with it. So just accept it. And it actually means you're doing what you need to do. That's fantastic. Kevin, thanks so much for being here. This has been fantastic. Thanks, John.